Just a side note, these are purely opinions who do not constitute any form of flight instruction, nor do they represent the opinions of any organizations your hosts are associated with. This is purely entertainment. Please reach out to CFI for further flight instruction. the independent podcast where we talk about aviation have a little bit of fun along the way and this podcast for anyone if you're interested in aviation if you're professional in the industry or if you're a say a flight student so i'm one of your hosts uh nicholas um i'm joined here by my host uh josh hey everyone how's it going uh yeah they're gonna respond um because you guys can talk right <laughs> you know what <laughs> anyways um oh, yeah, so we haven't recorded a podcast here in a bit. I believe we recorded our last one in October. So it's been a little while, but uh, we're back here to kind of inform our community and talk about what we've been doing. Um, we've done a, Each of us have done a lot of things actually in the last few months. Uh, Josh, do you want to start with what you've been up to? Sure. Um, yeah, it's been pretty busy, um, you know, managing the regular high school with um, starting to get into dip my toes in the professional world of aviation. I uh, This week, I passed my flight instructor airplane written and uh, fundamentals of instructor uh, instruction written, which is a huge accomplishment. So working on getting towards a check ride. And then uh, I've been uh, practicing for uh, my aerobatic competition coming up this April. And uh, actually today, I just had my first solo in the Great Lakes. So I've uh, been trying to balance all those things um, and also just staying current in my regular flying. But, uh, you know, it's been it's been a lot of fun, and I'm finally getting to practice the, the fun side for me of, of being a CFI, which is starting to, to teach um, or at least practice teaching people. Yeah, so um, I've also been up to a lot of stuff, um, specifically – um, when I have been able to get flights because we've had a little bit of weird weather here in Southern California, it's been quite windy and rainy this season. Um, hold up. Can, can you hear the like lawnmower in the background? I can't tell. No, I can't. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> we'll, we'll fix <laughs> it in post. Uh, no, I can hear him through my headset. So that's why I'm, I'm going to just close the window. Okay. Anyways, um, yeah, here in SoCal, um, we've had a lot of rain and some wind this season. But in, oh gosh, when would that have been? When did I solo? It was January. Yeah, Jan, like over January fifth. January fifth, it is okay. Um, yeah. I yeah, I soloed January fifth. Um, and then the following day, I did another solo flight. Um, at a nearby airport. Um, obviously with my instructor on the ground watching me. Um, nervous, scared trying to make sure that it wasn't go inverted or something at um, aviator nucleus for my awesome pictures of the solo oh yes yeah he did uh josh got some great um video of me you can check me out on instagram like he said at aviator nicholas or aviator dot nicholas <laughs> yeah i gotta specify my yeah. bad um as well as i've been getting into a few of the flight programs around the country um the main ones i applied to were purdue uh, university of north dakota and Embry-Riddle. Um, after a long series of deliberation, um, carefully considering cost, um, flight, cost of tuition really, cost of uh, f- like flight training, and then also like how my living quality is going to be, the types of dorms offered, that type of thing, 
um I was kind of pretty much down between um Embry or not Embry Riddle um University of North Dakota and Purdue. So then I kind of started doing like a like Venn diagrams and like pro con list of each of them and I came out on the side of Purdue pretty strong um and I'm going to be committing to Purdue here in the future. Um so I'm very excited to be Boilermaker um class uh, of 20 jealous 24. I'll uh I'll join you in 2025. Well, <laughs> I, I hope I hope you do, and I hope that you uh, maybe get a job as a flight instructor up there or similar. That would be fun. I think that would be a lot of fun. I'd, I'd love to do your instrument training. Oh, my gosh. I guess I'll uh, be holding out. No pun intended. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. Um, where am I at in my flight training? So, like Josh mentioned, uh, he's working on his uh cfi so i'm still on my ppl we're just a little baby student here but um i'm getting ready to start the uh cross country um portion of my flights so that's that and that's i love that i i'm very fond of that portion of my flight training because i mean that you, you <laughs> have so fun exploring and getting out and you you actually feel like you're you know finally doing what you probably got into aviation to do um and you know, we've done a few cross countries in the last few months together, which uh, which have been pretty fun. But it's it's it kind of like the the um, the culmination of everything you've been working towards, being able to go out and explore like that, and it's just it's just a ton of fun. Yeah, it makes the world uh, awfully lot smaller when you can get yeah. there in a plane with no traffic. Even in your one fifty two. You know what? The one fifty two that I was flying today, and it's actually a great segue because I'm gonna talk about the I love, flight I today. I, I'm not gonna. The one fifty two that I was flying today. Okay, there's three one fifty twos at the um flight school that I fly out of, and one of them Trifecta. is just Holy it's a Trinity. it's a it's a red one fifty two, right? It's the Ferrari, of one fifty twos. Just in, indulge me. It's the Ferrari. All one hundred twenty horsepower. One hundred and ten. Oh my bad. Um, for some reason that one is significantly faster. It climbs faster it goes Does it faster have power flow system on it i have genuinely no idea maintenance says that all planes are identical like all three planes are identical um mm. but for some reason this plane is significantly faster so i try to book this one a- a- as much as possible um see the thing about going fast is yeah it's important at some points but i didn't become a pilot to stay on the ground i can't pilot to be in the air so i don't you know as long as it's fast <laughs> enough i don't i don't mind i don't mind flying slow yeah another thing that comes with that is more things to do in less amount of time so like yeah maybe some procedures that you'd have more time if you were going slower that's definitely something to consider then again i'm, I'm one to talk because of <laughs> yeah so so do you want to talk about your flight today i guess then um yeah, I mean, it, it was it was great. Uh, I've been in and out of aerobatics for a few years, um, and uh, finally decided to double down um, and and commit, and uh, ended up doing my first aerobatic solo, which was a, a ton of fun. Um, it was kind of a weird feeling, you know, going upside down with with no one in front of me, no one to watch over you, and. Uh, you know the operation we do it with. They got two Great Lakes, um, and uh, you know classic biplanes. And they're they're really really awesome experience and really really great group of people, as well as a Yak and some T-34s. Uh, so soon. Dot to you. Yeah. 
Um, I also had, I was also up in the air today, this morning. Um, it was actually really good weather, um, which is... Yeah, it was stable. Did you see the lenticulars over Julian? I did. It was um, kind of like those almond-shaped clouds. That's what you're referring to, right? Yeah, so whenever you have stable air blowing at about 20 knots or more over a mountain ridge, you'll get lenticular clouds. Mm-hmm. Um, and those can produce some hazards below them. <laughs> That's a whole other topic, but uh, they're really pretty, and they look weird. Yeah, they are quite cool seeing those out in the distance. Um, but yeah, I also noticed um, coming in on final, we had to extend our base probably, I, I don't even know how long. We extended our base for probably a good four minutes. I mean, that's that's normal for the airport that I fly to, but just today it felt like an awfully long time because there were a lot of jets. Um, not as bad as the previous day. My instructor informed me that she was number 12 to land. Um, <laughs> and I don't, I'm glad that I wasn't flying then. Um but coming in on final, um, we had this really, like, strong tailwind. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't, like, seen in, or it wasn't reported in the um, ATIS. Like, it was, it was like, oh, yeah, four, like, I think I think it said, like, four, maybe, like, five knots. Um, mm-hmm. Like, uh, okay, like, we're still landing um, two, four, right? And I think it was, like, wow, one, seven, uh, no, it was one, seven, zero, it's something. Um, but right. we, we could see, like, on final, the uh, the windsock was just, like, the opposite direction. And we just had yeah. a tailwind, and we were just getting, like, held up in the air. I'm just, like, trying to get within my uh, white arc so I can drop my flaps and slow down. Um, yeah. It was a difficult day of um, stuff that was rewarding, especially um, some of the maneuvers that I did. I just, I was kind of, like, on fire today. Um, and in the good <laughs> sense, not the my plane was on fire. In the, I was doing very precise maneuvers um and it was a lot of fun doing that because it's good to see that you're not only within for me it would be private pilot standards but you're well within commercial standards it's something cool to be able to hold yourself to and i i I think that once you get to a certain point in your private pilot flight training you should strive to hold those commercial standards especially if you're going to end up going on to that stage of flight training it just it makes it easier you know you don't have to to relearn how to fly maneuvers to a more exacting standard and to be honest you, you should be able to do them to commercial standards the commercial standards aren't aren't that difficult yeah they're um, not crazy and again you have to understand the intent of the commercial pilot check right it is to really it's to demonstrate mat what they call mastery um of aircraft control and fundamentals of control um even though that doesn't necessarily mean you're a master flying by any means but it's meant to show you have mastery of the fundamentals of aircraft control and it sets you up to go into some of the more advanced ratings and flying you'll do so if you can learn those good habits early i, I think that's that's gonna benefit you so much more in, in the future and probably save you a lot of headache as well yeah yeah like you said you don't have to relearn them um mm-hmm. yeah that's probably something good to start striving for i've kind of done that in some maneuvers where i felt really comfortable with it but if I kind of just did it across the board, it would probably be uh, easier for the long run. Yeah. Also, before you finish your private pilot flight training, I would go up and do some of the more advanced commercial maneuvers. Um, you know, Shondells, Lazy 8s, 8s on pylons, things like that. Maybe not so much 8s on pylons, but but Shondells and Lazy 8s really, you know, A, they're fun. Um, and B, you know, they, they do teach you a bit about aircraft control and will probably take you to portions of the flight envelope you may not normally experience at a 152. Um, and, you know, if you can fly a good Shondell or a good Lazy 8, there's no reason you can't fly, um, you know, 
good any any other maneuvers on the on the private pilot check ride. I mean, those skills translate. So, you know, before you go out, I would maybe ask your instructor if you could go do a few of those um, for your check ride, and and not necessarily because you need those skills to pass PPL check ride, but it I think that it will it will benefit whoever's gonna go out and take one. Yeah, I can see the benefits of that. I would just have to check with um like my flight school's uh, standard mm-hmm. operating procedures, especially since it's a 141 school. Right. Um, okay, uh, is there anything else that's happened that you want to talk about um, that we've done? Um, otherwise, we can start talking about some of the flights we've done, uh, eating our way through Southern California. Yeah. Um, no, there's not a whole lot else going on here. Um, I... Uh, one thing I did do that I'm not very proud of is I uh, I am now outside of my 12-month grace or my additional six-month grace period for instrument currency. So um, within six months, need to log six approaches, uh, tracking courses, holding, and a few other things um, in order to be considered instrument current, to be legal to fly instrument. And then after those six months, you have an additional six months to fly with the safety pilot. Um, to be able to, uh, you know, get those done. And I have, uh, as of two weeks ago, been now outside that additional six month grace period. So at this point, uh, I'm going to end up needing uh, what is called an IPC, which is basically uh, like a BFR for instrument flying. Um, And uh, not the best, but, you know, it is what it is. I said too much on my plate. So what if I if I'm hearing this correctly, what you're saying is you're literally a failure of an aviator, complete yep. and total. So this is probably the end of my career. Um, <laughs> just gonna hang it up now and uh, you know quit while I'm ahead. Okay, yeah, sounds. I, I think that should be the title of our episode: a failure of an aviator. <laughs> oh yeah, quit while you're ahead. I like that too. Okay, um, moving on. Let's talk about our. Meet up and flight to Camarillo. Do you want to take this one, or do you want to take um the following item? Um, I'll let you choose, man. Uh, okay, I'll t- I'll take the first one. All right. Um, so uh, that would have been at the end of January, I want to say. Yeah, mid mid to the end of January in yeah. this kind of land. Me and uh, Josh, I went down to uh, Josh's home airport, and uh, we met up and flew from basically San Diego through the uh, LA Bravo, right over LAX International, um, which is quite cool. Um, and we did that in a Cessna 182 Skylane, um, and we ended up going to Camarillo. Um, and that was like my first, yeah, that, that was my first uh, experience of a cross-country flight in anything general aviation. Because like, airlines don't count. Um. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done cross country flights. You know, Southwest. For for first time in in the cockpit, going outside your your home area. Exactly, um, and it was really cool. Um, getting to talk to like SoCal Approach. Um, getting to be on the same frequency with you know the Southwest, the United, that type of thing. Um, and also learning about constant um speed propellers. Um, in the one eighty two yeah. with the complex um engine. Well. Not complex. The airplane is not complex. So for people who don't know, the FAA has a few ways of categorizing aircraft. You have categories, classes, types, and then you have a few additional things. 
Um, so a complex airplane is an airplane that has retractable gear and flaps um, and a constant speed or, or controllable pitch propeller. Um, so most, a lot of, of standard GA airplanes, a lot of your trainers are going to have, you know, a throttle, a mixture, um, and then they're going to have a propeller that has a fixed blade angle, right? Um, which means it can't be changed unless you manually get out of the airplane, um, take a bunch of tools and, you know, disassemble the, the propeller assembly and change the pitch. And those, those propellers are going to be usually one of two things. They're going to be adjusted. The pitch of the, the blades is going to be adjusted either for, um, something in particular like climb. So a lot of think if you have a fixed per pitch propeller bush plane that will like tune the prop to give you really good climb performance or average performance, right? So across the board, they want to just give you the best average performance. And that's something you can ask an AMP about. They, they would know all about that. A constant speed propeller is kind of counterintuitive, right? So you have a throttle, a mixture, and a propeller control. And what that allows you to do is change the pitch of the blades of the propeller from the cockpit manually. And the reason it's called constant speed, right, is because normally in, in your primary flight training on a fixed pitch propeller airplane, you are taught that the throttle regulates RPM, right? So I th pull the, the throttle back and I look at the RPM gauge to measure the change or, or my power setting, right? Yep. That's not really how engines work, right? You're what really you're actually doing... adjusting the amount of fuel, the fuel and air that's entering. Um, yes, but you're also changing manifold pressure, right? Okay. Um, and that's a whole whole another another topic, right? That you're you're adjusting manifold pressure, which in turn is is adjusting other things, like you said, fuel and air. Um, so with the constant speed propeller, why it's called constant speed is because if I pull the power back, right, um, to an extent, I can maintain the exact same R propeller RPM, right, which gives me a lot more control over my engine. Um, so as I pull the prop back or as I pull the, the, uh, power back, right. Maybe let's say 15%. If I have my propeller control full forward, I may be able to maintain 2,500 RPM the entire way. Right. Yeah. Which allows you to adjust and change the engine, um, a very specific way and obtain, you know, very, very efficiently running engine, um, and this is going to be typical on, like you said, complex airplanes or airplanes that are higher performance, like the Skyline, which is an engine of over 200 horsepower, right? Yeah. Um, it's a big difference from my carbureted right. engine. Yeah. Um, well, not not necessarily. You can have carbureted um, high-performance engines. In this case, it just happened to be fuel-injected. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the IO, um, I think it's the, the 550. I'm drawing a blank right now. Um, or a 520, but, um, you know, it, it, it specifically allows you to obtain um, those settings, and that's why it's called constant speed. And basically how it works is you have something called a propeller governor, which um, runs off oil, um, you know, pressurized oil flowing in and out that changes the pitch of the propeller blades. And that's a whole, whole different, you know, topic, but um, super useful. And as you start stepping up to higher performance or more complex airplanes, those are pretty typical. Um, to see. So yeah, you. I think you got to see. I think that was your first time working with one of those. And um, you know, we we talked a little about as well flying a fuel injected engine, about things like shock cooling and and um, with high performance engines planning descents and and really carefully planning 
how, what profiles you're going to fly in order to help you know minimize the operational risk from that standpoint so yeah making sure you're getting your descent in early or on time rather um so you're not right. doing things like shot cooling like you mentioned right. um or you know having to slip in camarillo <laughs> oh that oh, oh that 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 yeah, yeah. that never happened um mm-hmm. but we had some we had, <laughs> while we were there um let's see we got some food there we waited quite a bit um to get uh table there because the restaurant uh what was it called uh, not point break um waypoint cafe. waypoint i was thinking of the movie <laughs> um, yeah but yeah, Waypoint Cafe, wonderful food. Did not get a milkshake though, because we did, I didn't want to put that on Josh's uh, windscreen, on departure. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, it was it was a little gusty. I didn't want to put that on my on the uh, windscreen either. So. Yeah, smooth landings all around though. Um, it was a pleasure to fly with Josh. Um, as well, I guess that was our first time flying together. Um, but yeah, so. It was it was a really cool experience getting to um, get away from the home area. Um, it's kind of a vacation in eight hours, um, similar to another flight that we ended up doing um, to a nearby airport, uh, which some of you may know. Um, it's called Catalina, Catalina Island. Um, it, 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 yeah, the airport in the sky, right? Um, per, well, it's not it's not ridiculously short. It's a short runway. Um, kind of looks like you're on an aircraft carrier when you're um when you're getting ready to land in a sense it's situated on it's about a uh, 1500 feet up um or maybe a little bit lower than that about you know 1500 or so feet up and there are two very steep drop-offs on either end these massive cliffs that go down about 600 feet um and looks like you're landing on an aircraft carrier a little bit for that reason and there are some operational hazards um going into that airport and unfortunately actually a few days before we ended up going there um a bonanza from our club ran off the end of runway 22 um and ended up uh, becoming fatal um uh, which is unfortunate but you know um these things do happen in aviation um and it was a, a an important reminder i think to to all of us here that we're not invulnerable and that you know you need to treat some of these operational risks with respect that being said however i i would in, i would encourage people to go out there with the cfi if you can um it's a really really awesome airport it's a great experience and as long as you approach those risks appropriately and, and work to mitigate them in, a, in an appropriate fashion then um you know it it is not necessarily an unsafe airport and, and it's a ton of fun and it's a great experience so yeah, the risks can be highly mitigated um, as long as you're aware of them. And uh, Josh gave me an extensive briefing in terms of our over-ocean over um, risks and the procedures in case we were to have to ditch the aircraft um, and that type of thing. So well, in respect to that, we were performing very safely, you know what I mean? Um, right, yeah. And then... Uh, like I mentioned, of course, we're gonna get some great food um, because <laughs> it just so happens that the airports the that we we're flying to happen to have great food. Not a coincidence. Maybe it's a coincidence. Who knows? Um, Who knows? <laughs> um, let's see. I got. I don't remember. What I, got. I got a great sandwich there. I think. Um, looked at the island. I'd never been to Catalina, so it was actually really quite cool. Um, I highly recommend it. Like you said, um, for it's beautiful 
anyone that gets the opportunity to visit. Um, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about some of the things that, that can be riskier or potentially risky. Yeah, sure. If you want, um, do you want to start with like the optical illusion type thing? Or... Sure. Yeah. So the, so there are a few, there are a few issues with, with Catalina, um, mainly concerning the runway. Um, that, that, that's the issue. Um, Runway is you got two two and four, um, and runway two two is pretty heavily sloped upwards, right? Um, so not only do you have this falling terrain around the airport, but you also have that that strong, um, pretty pretty significant slope up. So the tendency is for people to get scared um, and to fly extremely high and steep approach with too much energy, um, and then to freak out because they can't see the, the the hump is significant to the point where you can't see the end of the runway right and you've got about i think 3500 feet of runway which is plenty to put a 172 down on yeah. even if significant float um and they get scared they could either cook the brakes um or they come in super high with too much energy don't go around um and end up departing the runway um so you know the big ones there uh, again, when in doubt, trust the instruments. Use your altimeter, right? You should know um, from flying a, a normal pattern um, what numbers you're looking for at what point, you know, about approximately what altitude are you going to be with the normal descent rate that you start turning base on, right? A couple hundred feet of altitude loss to 300 feet of altitude loss, you know, approximately what numbers you're looking for on short final, right? Um, and then maintaining those throughout the duration of the approach because it's just an airport um, and, you know, it, it fly your normal pattern. That being said, because of those drop-offs, when you have a, a decent wind coming across the runway, you have a tendency to get downdrafts, right? Um, the wind, it's a fluid, or the, the air is a fluid, so the wind will come across the runway, hit the end of the drop-off, and follow it, right? Yeah. problem is, is that people hear that and then get terrified of it. They think their airplane's just going to fall out of the sky. So again, they fly a very hot, very steep approach. Um, the reality situation is they do exist, and if you're not careful, they can put you into the ground, um, or at least contribute to you getting into the ground. But um, they're not the craziest thing in the world. I think we, we had about eight knots of wind, and you, uh, you we felt the downdraft, and there's a pretty good video of it. You know, fly maybe... 100 150 feet higher um even less depending on on what the wind's doing that day um with maybe a few knots of extra airspeed if any if, if it's even required which i in this in this case with wind down the runway at eight knots it really wasn't and you'll feel it it'll happen for two or three seconds and then you'll be right on glide path you know um and of course, you know, when in doubt, go around. So if you if you end up feeling them and you're uncomfortable with the rate of descent, even though, you know, they're usually pretty mild. Excuse, <laughs> pretty mild with uh, with the, the wind you're gonna get out there. Um, you know, power power in. You know, pitch pitch for your best climb and, and go around. Um, and, you know, as long as, as you do that, there's no reason to come in with 15 knots of extra airspeed with 500 feet higher than you normally would, right? And obviously that's a, that's a, a little bit of hyperbole, but people get into that mindset. Um, 
and that's I think what causes a lot of the landing accidents over there. Yeah, and uh, just follow up on uh, what you're saying with the runway. It's a, I just looked it up. It's exactly three thousand feet long and seventy five feet wide. Just to provide yeah. context or context to anyone that's uh, not familiar. So if you can't put a one seventy two down in three thousand feet, there's some issues. Yeah, um, it was a really cool airport. Um, really cool place to be, and I think one of the things that I was thinking about. Um, towards about on downwind is this place is really beautiful, but it can also become a distraction really easily. You have to remember yeah. you have a job there. You're there to fly. Um, you're, you can't get distracted by the, um, sheer beauty of like the cliffs and the seaside and the clear water type thing. You need to make sure that you're still on your, your flight path, your, uh, at the correct altitude, that type of thing. So uh, that was one of my observations that I concluded, or I uh, I was able to observe, rather. And uh, I don't know, that was just something that was significant to me, kind of like seeing that that could be a, a potential hazard. Yeah, I, I'm I'm in agreement with that. I mean, you know, anytime you're you're acting as pilot in command of an airplane, um, or even training to, um, you know, there you have an order of priority. And the first one is maintaining positive control of the airplane, you know, maintaining situational awareness, um, and then complying with all of your legal duties as well as, as what's going to be safe for the flight. So, you know, there is a time to take pictures in the airplane, um, chat, and have a good time. Uh, and, you know, you don't have to be uptight and sweating and on, on the controls, but you do have to be attentive and alert. Um, and, and, yeah, I think anytime you're, you're flying an airplane, um, you have to be aware of, of potentially what can become distracting. Um, go into the mindset of that and, and be able to like kind of push that out mentally and, and really lock into to the task at hand. Yeah. Um, with that said, if you want to distract yourself, um, I'm going to put the, uh, a few photos um, and maybe if I can find a good video or two that I have, um, I'll put that in the show information below on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it's Anchor FM um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, which is where we put our podcasts um, as of right now. Um, all right. So is that it for Catalina and Camarillo? Yeah, I mean, there is some overwater information, but I think that's kind of redundant. There's a lot of information already out there, and, and it, it, it's no different um, uh, than, than anything you would come across normally for overwater flights. So, Yeah, try not be shark food. That's the main thing. No, no, know what to do. Have a good plan of action. Remember that anything that's not in immediately arm's reach of the airplane is probably not coming out with you when you leave. Um, so plan accordingly. Bring your gear. Have a good plan. Talk to somebody. Make sure that you're seen. Um, and it's, again, it, it's you know, it's an it, it is. I would say one of the more inherently dangerous things you can do in a single engine airplane or even a, a light twin. But as long as you approach the risk appropriately go into it with the right mindset and mitigate them it, it the amount of danger has decreased dramatically very quickly so. cool um what else has been going on um oh actually no, i have this on the docket um aerospace engineering so i'm uh, at my high school i have the opportunity to take part in an engineering class it's sort of the project lead the way um curriculum and it's specifically based on uh, aerospace and like aeronautics and all that. So if you guys follow my Instagram, like we plugged earlier, um, 
you'll see that I've been working on building some. First, we were starting with gliders. Then we were like launching the gliders off the bleachers in my uh, the high school gym. Um, now we're doing powered free flight. Um, our next unit is Mars rovers, and then we're gonna do rockets, like actual rockets, um, like model uh, you rockets. Can come type a flat thing. Earther and launch yourself into the atmosphere. Yeah, I saw that in the news. Um, <laughs> regardless um and then we're gonna do like um bigger size model planes um as well as we're uh designing a plane pretty much up to midterms um and actually coming up here pretty soon actually so it may be the whole year um anyways uh, uh, a full-scale plane so i'm doing a general aviation plane and we're doing that in uh cad modeling if you're familiar with that so that's basically computer 3d um modeling type thing uh, and we have to make sure everything's uh, correct down to the airfoil um, and, the you know, obviously the flight controls um, and the electrical system. So we're kind of yeah, we're working in pairs and there's 12 of us. So um, it's kind of been cool to see both sides because one thing to be a pilot and it's another thing to um, understand how things work. Because there's things like, say, the uh, how how's um, a plane generate lift? Um the the way that I was always uh, taught for, like, the FAA answer is, like, Bernoulli's principle, right? But there's more than that. There's obviously be, like, Bernoulli's principle, Coand effect, boundary layer, uh, Newtonian deflection. Like, it, it's really opened my eyes to some of the things that we don't necessarily need to learn as pilots but can make you a better aviator. And I think that's not necessarily important for everyone to know, but um, something that's interesting and just another... Um, piece of my life that has been absorbed into the aviation addiction yeah and i i actually think that's a really interesting thing to talk about you know from a instructor standpoint there comes a, you know your job is to to transfer learning to someone and, and get them to change their behavior right accordingly um teaching them how to fly and you have to find a good balance between you know what I can teach you reasonably from a practical standpoint and what you need to know to be safe. Um, and, and obviously, you know, satisfy the clientele. So pass a check ride, get a license. But, you know, if you can take that initiative to go above and beyond as either a student or, um, you know, an existing pilot, you, you have a license or even a professional, a lot of professional pilots, you can take this technical knowledge, right? Um, and then make these connections between that, that technical knowledge and your practical experience um, and I think it really does increase the, your capacity as a pilot. So understanding um, aerodynamics, understanding weather um, at those more advanced levels, even at primary stages, or if you're a professional and haven't at the professional stage, I think really, really, really makes your flying potentially a lot safer if you apply it in the correct way. Um, so yeah, I think you know you you should want to have that initiative especially if you're planning on going to professional aviation to go above and beyond what is required on a check right answer right yeah uh, I, that's a really great way to put it um yeah all right because as an instructor you know we we may not be able to to feasibly give you a college level aerodynamics course <laughs> yeah. it, it is not practical right but if you're able to understand the concepts in that way and connect uh, those ideas to, like I said, what we teach you in the airplane, um, there is a potential to really advance your flying and to, to, to make that a lot better. Um, obviously, that, that comes with precautions. You have to properly understand it. 
um, and and things like that. But anyways, I'm, I'm rambling. I, I would encourage you to go out and try to learn as, as much as you, you think you can about, about the subject and about your profession or hobby. Yeah, it would never hurts to learn more. And it's not just properly learning it, though. It's also like properly applying it because just because you know know why your plane is flying doesn't mean you can fly it yeah and i'm of the believer that pilots are all huge nerds at least most of us so i find that kind of stuff interesting at least yes all right um i think we've recapped most of what's gone on in the last few months since we've recorded an episode and we promise we're going to try to record these episodes just a bit more often perhaps it's my fault no, it's definitely uh, both of our faults. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've just been, as you guys may tell, may be able to tell, um, quite a bit busy. Um, so with that said, do you want to move into our news segment? Sure. Okay. Um, let's play the news intro. All right, um, and actually, before I start with the news segment, um, I did get a question on Instagram. I don't remember who it was from. I can go back and check that. Maybe I'll fix it in post. Um, where I was getting the music from, uh, I actually wrote the music, which is a, kind of a rotating introduction. It's whatever I'm working on in my music composition class. I pretty much just use as the introduction. Um, and the same thing for the news stinger. I wrote that. Um, I think initially I wrote them in GarageBand, but now I'm using uh, FL Studios and Logic, if, if you're interested in that type of thing. Anyways, you're here for aviation, not music. Um, let's start off with the first uh, bit of news. Um, I'll take this first one. Um, from generalaviationnews.com, technology in the cockpit, a tool and a weakness. Let me get on to this. All right, so I'll read you just uh, the first blurb of this. Um Pilot looking at iPad hits another plane on the taxiway. <laughs> right. The chief pilot at a flight school at the airport in Brunswick, Georgia, reported the pilot receiving instruction was taxiing the Diamond DA-42 to the runway and at a non-towered controlled airport and was heads in, looking down, and researching information on his iPad. When he heard someone yell, Stop! He quickly applied the brakes, but the plane collided with the airplane stopped on the taxiway, holding short of the runway. Chief pilot added the fl- the flight instructor was inputting radio frequencies and was unaware that the pilot was also looking inside the airplane. The instructor looked up just in time to hear the backseat passenger yell stop and see the collision. The safety coordinator of the flight school that operated the air- the stopped airplane reported that while holding short of the runway and performing the before takeoff checklist, that's probably the run-up, uh, the flight instructor and pilot receiving instruction felt a hard impact from the rear. The stopped aircraft sustained substantial damage to the elevator. The safety coordinator and chief pilot both reported there were no pre-accidental mechanical failures and there were no injuries. Um, And if you're interested in that, the NTSB identification is GAA18CA198B. So this kind of a situation, or this kind of an example of situational awareness, um, especially with people looking at uh, iPads, charts, checklists, that type of thing. Um, it's kind of an unfortunate case, probably an expensive case of uh, oops. Um, I'll bite you that the instructor and the uh, student will not make this mistake again. Um, hopefully not, at least. Um, hate to see it happen. Um, 
and there's things that can be done to avoid this, but, um, yeah, at least no one was hurt in this case. Um, I don't personally fly with an iPad. Um, I know you do. I've, I've flown with an iPad when I flew with, uh, Josh up to Camarillo, but even on the second lay or not second leg, um, the second flight to Catalina, I decided I didn't want to fly with the iPad until instrument because I feel as if with VFR flight, um, it's not justified, um, unless you are using, say, your iPad for sectional charts or that type of thing. Um, but even then, paper charts, uh, they don't, their battery doesn't die because they don't have one. Um, and I just feel more capable with the paper charts because I know that it's going to do exactly what I need it to. Um, and there's a little bit less fooling around with it. Um, but that's just my perspective. Do you want to talk about this? Sure. I think there are two two ways you can go in this conversation. There's the technology and flying aspect, right? And then there's also the situational awareness PIC duty. So I don't know where, where you kind of want to go first. Uh, wherever you want to go. I don't care. Sure. I, I think the, the second one is a little simpler. So, you know, I think we've all been there. It's your, you know, anyone anyone who's, who's been flying for a while, um, you know, been flying with family or, or been doing long trips, you will have you know, your third flight of the day, you're on your fifth cup of coffee, you're tired, you've been up since 530, you know, you're getting bounced around in the soup. It's It's not the most fun experience on your end. But I think it's important to remember that as soon as you strap into an airplane alone or with, you know, non-pilot passengers or even with pilot passengers as PIC, you are responsible for flying the airplane from the chocks out to, you know, from out of the chocks to back into the chocks. And the flight doesn't stop until the airplane's put away, the hangar's locked, and you're in your car, um, in, in my opinion, right? And... You know, I think this is a classic example of, of, you know, rushing and neglecting procedures and getting distracted um, due to, you know, external factors. And um, people forget that even at your home airport on the ground, you're flying an airplane, right? And although it may seem, you know, completely nonchalant to us, you know, as pilots, you know, it, the airport is an inherently dangerous place. Props are turning, expensive things are moving, flammable liquids are moving in metal tubes that are <laughs> controlled by monkeys, right? Um, so no matter if you're on the ground, in the air, no matter what, you know, your job as PIC doesn't stop. And especially as a flight instructor in this case, who I assume is probably acting as the PIC, um, mm -hmm. you know, you, you are responsible for flying the airplane. Um, so just as a good operational habit, um, I either will do all of my setup for the flight in the ramp, um, you know, in, in the chocks or in the line, or I will uh, do it in the run-up, um, especially for instrument flight. Uh, people without who haven't flown instrument before don't, I don't think, understand exactly how much setup really goes into it, especially when you have complex departures and, and things like that. You, you really do need a solid chunk of time to get everything programmed, set up, verified, briefed, um, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, as soon as the airplane starts moving on, on the ground, at that point, my attention goes away from everything else, and I'm just flying the airplane at that point, right? Aviate, navigate, communicate applies. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, it's a pretty big oops, um, and it's... Uh, unprofessional and completely not appropriate to trash other pilots um, 
And I, I don't really think this was an example of incompetency or anything like that. I think it was a temporary lapse in judgment that ended up biting pretty hard. And you know what? It happens. It's happened to me. Um, thankfully Hopefully not, not to this degree. <laughs> yeah, not in a major way. Um, but it, it happens. And, you know, the truth is it'll probably at some point happen to you. The point is, is uh, A, um, can you catch your mistakes before you make them? Uh, or B, if you make the mistake, can you recognize uh can you recognize that, label it, and, and take it as a learning moment? And again, um, I think some of the best advice I've ever heard in my flying is the difference between you and a professional pilot, uh, and this was because I was beating myself up pretty hard, is a professional pilot um, will make the mistake, understand it's a mistake, and learn from it. You as a student pilot will make a mistake, either not recognize it, uh, or recognize it and do nothing about it, right? And as soon as you are able to, to recognize your mistakes or admit to your mistakes and learn from them, you start bridging that gap between, you know, student or hobbyist GA pilot and professional pilot. That's just one step closer. Um, so that's always important as well, right? Yeah. And um, then additionally, oh, sorry, good. No, no, you go ahead, continue. Um, there's the technology and flying debate, and this is huge, right? Um, uh, th this has been an ever going ever since you know people have started flying airplanes. Um, technology has been advancing in airplanes, and aviation itself has been going with it. And more recently, I think um, we're at that point where consumer electronics and electronics in general are have infiltrated. You know, as funny as that word is, used <laughs> the cockpits of almost um, every sector of aviation. Um, and their effects are, are being are being felt in that way. Um, personally, I am a huge fan of consumer-grade electronics and advanced avionics and general aviation airplanes. The amount of information you have available to you as a pilot is massive, and therefore the amount of situational awareness you can gain is also relatively high. The caveat to that is that you know it, it's going to be the the amount of information and the amount of usefulness you can pull from the avionics in your uh, technology is always going to be equal or proportional to the skill of the person using them, right? Um, if you aren't properly trained on how to use your equipment well um, and how to, to maximize its effectiveness, then uh, you know, you're either not going to be able to, to get the maximum amount of information or benefit from technology that you can, or you're going to potentially increase the risk and, and start going back on the trend, right? So I know you said that um, <laughs> you, you don't think that it's worthwhile for, for VFR or for students. I'm at, a, I'm at a crossroads for that. I think that training on you know, paper charts is important because it teaches you, um, you know, the fundamentals of, of things like dead reckoning, um, and pilot edge, and it teaches you also to be able to be confident in your answers, right? Um, to be confident in your ability to fly, and I think it builds confidence um, in a student when you can take paper and put it and put it in an airplane and transfer those two, right? You take your plan on paper, adapt for it in the airplane without any help. However, um, I also think we're getting to a point um, in civilization and in flying where the argument that well, my charts don't have batteries or you know, my charts won't break, um, is starting to become invalid because there's so much redundancy built into um, to, to electronic flight bags and things like that. You know, I have with me at any time my iPad, my, in some airplanes, my avionics that have charts preloaded, my phone, 
Um, and then some people, you know, even carry secondary iPads. So the idea that all three or even just my iPad and my phone are going to break in very short time is to me, it sounds like the equivalent of, well, oh, you open up the window and your chart gets sucked out the window. <laughs> right, now. right. Like, well, excuse my language. Um, <laughs> Right, you know, family it, show. It's a family. Show. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, okay. Then I guess I have to ask for help because I, I, I don't have the information with me, right? Um, and yeah, it's important to to have backups, but those can be either, in, in my opinion, in digital form or in paper form. And if you intend, I think to, to, and this is more a question for for DPS, and I, I think a lot of uh, instructors, if you intend to fly with an iPad for the rest of your career, why shouldn't you be able to take the check ride um, with uh, with an iPad, right? Even if, if the position data fails, that's a little more realistic or, or whatever. Um, why shouldn't you be able to take a private pilot check ride with an iPad with preloaded sectional charts, right? Um, and as long as you have a way to back it up that's safe and, and mitigates the risk of the, the weak spots of, of that uh, means of information. and you know, I am also a believer that is when you get to more advanced things, instrument, commercial stuff like that, paper charts become a hazard. Um, trying to flip through a 400-page binder of approach plates in the soup with no autopilot while you're getting vectored and uh, around, I think is dangerous. It's a distractor versus me tapping a few things on my iPad and pulling up uh, overlaid charts and, and things like that. The caveat, again, to that is understanding the limitations, like anything. You know, if you're using things like FISB or Nexrad um, weather, which is uh, satellite weather, you have to understand that you can't be flying, you know, picking your way through thunderstorms yeah. with data that's 15 minutes old, right? Um, or, or understanding that there's a potential for that to fail. But as long as you understand that and you're able, to, once again, to take those risks and mitigate them appropriately, then I think that we're at the point in our industry where it is time to accept consumer grade electronics or uh, electronics in general are safe and that they can be used effectively and safely and that i think for the most part we should encourage their use because i think with the proper training and with you know proper skill sets from pilots i think that they they will enhance safety and that they do enhance um, our ability as pilots to to safely operate the airplane so those are my two cents yeah and i i, I get where you're coming from for a lot of that um uh, for me, it's not necessarily a blanket statement that uh, all private pilot um, students should not be using an iPad or that type of thing. It's more along the lines of I feel as if I perform better as a pilot with paper charts for VFR flights. That's more of my thing. Um, just be And also for students, I feel um, like from what I've heard and what I've experienced as being a private pilot, I feel like... I'm, I feel like I get a more of a confidence boost like you were referring to from being able to use just sheer pilotage and um, my, my skills using my sectional, my, um, my TAF being my, or not my TAF, um, my TAC, my uh, terminal area chart. Um, I, I, maybe I'm kind of like, you know, one of those uh, old pilots that hangs around the FBO that's like, remember when we used to use only VORs and uh, paper charts and uh, you, had to, you had to identify the VOR manually or, 1, 000, or G550000 didn't identify it for us. Like, I, I guess I've kind of adapted that mentality in a sense because yeah. um, I kind of do have an appreciation for 
um, like the old fashioned way of flying because um, I don't know. I feel like if you you start with the paper charts, that's like the elementary way of flying. But then once you kind of uh, build off of that, then you're kind of unlocking additional levels or skills um, of of flying and really uh, cockpit or crew resource management. Um, and wow, we've really gotten off track from where we started at the beginning, but this is a great conversation um, about how to really develop as like a student. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'll add my, my finishing two cents as well. I mean, I, I'm in agreement that you need to learn how to use paper at some point. Um, uh, I think, and I've always been a fan of that. And, you know, I did my entire private pilot and all of, and a majority of my instrument um, check ride using the paper charts. Um, and I'll tell you that there's nothing, you know, more not confidence boosting than flying over the middle of Arizona on a VFR flight plan you did in your, you know, mom's dining room, um, <laughs> on a nav log with no GPS, right? It teaches you to trust the planning and, and to, to use, um, you know, good skills as an aviator. Um, but I think that there is a point where you have, where you should be accepting technology in the cockpit and that, that's a whole different discussion, but, um, but yeah, you know, I, I think there's definitely an importance that needs to be placed on learning how to use paper and, and learning how to do the old school way. And when I fly the Great Lakes in the local area, I, I do not carry, uh, uh, electronic charts on my, on my phone <laughs> readily available. I have a paper sectional on my kneeboard or, uh, cutouts from the tack chart, at least on my kneeboard. Um, that I used to navigate, um, and you know, it works just fine. I had no no airspace violations yet. So, yeah. With that said, I'm exceedingly excited to fly um, the G1000 planes at Purdue. Yeah. So uh, yeah, G1000 is a really awesome system if you know how to use it right. Yeah, it's all it's like I mentioned with the cockpit resource management. It's about using your tools, whether it be technology, paper. Um, even human resources in a sense like the inside the cockpit being maybe your instructor or uh, ATC. Um, it's really about how you use the tool. And, and I think that's just a personal um, preference in a sense is how you're going to perform the best. And that's really up to the individual. Yeah, um, I, I would say so. Okay, cool. Um, uh, moving on to the next... Um, Thing. Do you want to take this next article, or yeah, um, the drone training one? Uh, yeah, or you can move down to one of the ones that you put on there. Um, yeah, I'll let you take the drone training one. I, I kind of have my topic that I want to talk about, but uh, that's all. Uh, but I'll, I'll let you take this one since okay. I'm not cool. too acquainted with it. Yeah, I'll just um, this is just a <laughs> short little article. Oh, this one's also from uh, same resource generally fusionnews.com just so we can credit them by uh terry jardo hopefully i'm saying that right anyways um it's we're from socal we're probably not saying it probably right. probably not uh, sorry yeah um anyways uh he writes uh drone training comes to the classroom uh you don't need a crystal ball or tea leaves to tell us that drones will become more and more part of our daily lives everything Everything from currently expanding uses in public safety, agriculture, and photography to upcoming package delivery and many other services we have not imagined will, will, wow, <laughs> English, uh, will, will we've not imagined if we'll be using uh, drones and need capable drone pilots. Um, so kind of this article talks about the need for drone pilots and really uh, competent drone pilots 
and uh, how they're doing this in STEM classrooms all across the country at the level of middle school and high school in the United States. Um, so these select pilot programs, and no pun intended, but now that I'm thinking about it, uh, it's kind of funny, um, are being used to kind of inform the public on things like airspace, like where you're not, you should not be flying your drone, you know, uh, right over LAX. Like maybe there's a problem with that type thing. Um, as well as kind of introducing uh, prospective students into the STEM field, um, in, uh, introducing them uh, into the aviation category and trying to maybe, you know, solve some of like those things like we have the gender divide, um, that that type of thing in aviation and maybe we can kind of start remedying this and the pilot shortage um by getting young people interested in aviation um we've talked about getting young people interested interested in aviation in the past on this show um but yeah this is just another example of how people can uh get interested in it um some of these programs offer part 107 uh training and even certif certification i know a local high school of mine uh, works with ROTC to do that, and or sorry, that would be JROTC, so Junior uh, Reserve Officer Training uh, Corps, and then they can, while they're in high school, they can work as like say real estate photographer, um, commercial videographers if they have access to that type of equipment for drones, um, and I have a few friends that have made like a a decent amount of money off of doing that. Um, as kind of like their side job while they're interested still in pursuing a career um, in professional aviation, in the military, um, lots of different stuff you can do with that. And it's a really cool community, re not resource, outreach program um, that's being done by a lot of the schools that are STEM-centered. Um, I highly encourage anyone who's interested in it to pursue it. You have anything to say? Um, I think it's, it's, it's great. Um, you know, I have opinions on, on drones and I think that, you know, in my perfect world, people would not have readily available access to drones. However, I'm respecting of people's freedom, but <laughs> I'm of the opinion that you put the ability, uh, to have potentially high tech and very capable equipment in the hands of untrained mass of the mass general public, bad things happen. Um, and that, I think we kind of saw that a lot in the early, you know, 2010s. Um, and I have personally had three encounters with drones, um, in, in very busy areas and airplanes. And I will tell you as the pilot of a fabric airplane, um, the idea of hitting a, a metal or plastic drone at 130 knots is not very comforting. Um, was that a GoPro? <laughs> yeah, that's my GoPro in the background. I'm sorry. I'm screwing with it. Um, but, um, you know, I think the, the more education we can have toward professional drone operators, the better. And I'm, I'm, I know that the technology has been used for a lot of good. Um, and also just having, you know, exposing or making aviation more accessible to kids our age is, I think, important. Um, and, you know, I know there are even some high schools that have, you know, flight training courses as part of their as part of the curriculum. Um, and I think you know, the more and more ways we can get people into the industry and get people, you know, started with it, um, the better, uh, or, or the better the industry will improve and the, and the more willing participants will have. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm all for it.
yeah, public uh, education, things like aviation is always going to make it safer. Um, so I, I like safe skies. So uh, I'm highly in favor of this. Yeah, like you said, with uh, drones, I mean, I've yet to have an encounter with one, which I'm thankful for. Um, not really looking forward to that. But yeah, um, I don't know if there's too much to say about that. It, it, it's, it's something cool um, for people that aren't necessarily interested in it to kind of understand the fundamentals of flight. I think that's something valuable to understand, even if you're not going into it as a career. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, next on the news docket. All right. So there's um, a YouTuber that probably a lot of people in the aviation community know as Flight Chops. Um, he's kind of partnered with this uh, flight instructor. His name is Dan uh, Grider. Um, and he's created this grassroots movement to try to combat um, the fatal GA um, accidents epidemic that's happening in our segment of aviation um they bring out some kind of like crazy statistics that we we as a community have a fatal general aviation incident or would that be right yeah. that would be accident i don't know how the yeah, mtsb I, I, it would be accident rate yeah, yeah. the fatal um, accident rate is significantly higher than than almost any other sector of aviation yeah so every 1.7 days we lose someone to general aviation um on so, average. Yeah, on average. Yeah, it's not like um, every 1.7 days just a plane drops out of the sky. But that's the average statistic. So um, to try to combat this, they've created what they call an AQP, which stands for uh, Advanced Qualification Program, um, which is kind of like an annual flight review. Um, so it's a voluntary flight review that you can do with a certified flight instructor. Um, it's just kind of trying to like review your fundamentals of flight type thing um, and making sure that you're kind of you know, what they're doing is they're applying an airline uh, based model of training and proficiency to general aviation because airline incidents are in terms of pilot induced incidents are at an all time low. So they're trying to model that success in the general aviation segment so this voluntary program basically goes through some stuff that we don't necessarily practice in general aviation like especially on check rides but they do practice in the airlines because there's a lot of stuff that the airlines are doing that they have they have the opportunity to do that because of the certain segments and regulations they can kind of make some of their own um, decisions within the segment. I don't know if that's the best way to phrase that. Um, but it's led to success there, and they're just basically trying to model that. So if you're interested in um, pursuing that type of thing, it's flightchops.com forward slash grassroots. That's flightchops.com forward slash grassroots. Um, it's voluntary, like I said, and if you were to fail it, there's no repercussions. It's not an official FAA, uh, like check ride or less, or it's a it's a lesson basically. Um, and if you fail it, you just identify where you're deficient, and you can basically uh, identify that and overcome it. So it's something valuable that maybe some of you out there would benefit from, and we want to share that with you. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what the the goal is is to bridge the gap between how the the mindsets of each community. And I think you know, as long as as general aviation exists in in the state that it does um, within the U.S., I think that the fatal accident rate will always be significantly higher than uh, than than the airlines. And that's simply because the barrier of entry is too low. The experience. Right. A private pilot's license is a lesson to learn. Uh, or as a license to learn, and and you, you don't need to necessarily be uh, even remotely qualified to possess one. Um, <laughs> however, you know I think what they're doing is admirable, and I, it comes down to the mindset of the general aviation pilot versus the professional pilot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to and and the the video that made headlines was the design minimum maneuvering speed video, which is design which is a video to help. Um, enhance the situational awareness of pilots as to uh, loss of control accidents uh, at low altitude, um, which is a leading cause of, of fatalities in general aviation aircraft. Um, you know, classic example, the base to final um, turn stall or spin, mm-hmm. right? You're at a critically low altitude, critically low energy state. Person either becomes uncoordinated or disoriented or any number of things and ends up putting the airplane into a spin stall. Um, if you were to ask any airline pilot or anyone who knows anything about aerodynamics, if you were going to be able to recover a uh, swept wing jet at 1500 AGL at VRF or you know uh, near landing speed um, in the landing configuration from a departure, you were probably going to get no as an answer, right? If you ask a lot of GA pilots that same question, the answer will probably be yes. And normally, I'd be inclined to agree with that with the the exception being if you're in an extremely, you know, if you have an extremely well-trained pilot who's trained to recognize what, what upset looks like, you know, if you can, you, I think, you know, if you were to stall an archer at 1500 feet, you could probably get it out of, out of a, out of a stall within that, within that time, or at least into a point where you can recover from any unusual attitude that may develop. Yeah. But because of the different operational environments um, and, and conditions that airline pilots have, they focus more on stall prevention than stall recovery, right? Um, so the problem is in GA is that we, we focus a lot on the knowledge of, of what a stall is and how to recover from them versus avoiding them altogether, right? Um, and so, you know, the, that's just one example of the, the mindset, the difference in mindset between a professional pilot um, and an average GA pilot, we focus more on recovery than prevention, and, and that was the subject of the first video. Um, the, the, and also the whole mindset that you know we have an AQP, um, an, an annual review where we assess the ability to uh, uh, to you know mitigate those risks and to um, take those those hazards at low altitude or low airspeeds or whatever it may be, um, and then train for them in, in, in that professional mindset and that preventative mindset, right? Um, and, and bridging that gap between the ACS checkride standards or maybe even a BFR standard uh, where you're asked to demonstrate skills versus your ability to use judgment as a pilot um, and to, to prevent things from developing to that point in the first place. Um, and I think that was the goal. I really liked the first video they did. I think it was uh, really good. The second video, eh. You know, the, the fact is that a 182 isn't an airliner, and there are certain things um, that don't that don't necessarily apply. And also, some of the stuff they did, like fake declaring a real emergency, was just kind of confusing. And, and why? 
I understand, I understand the justification, but the, the execution was so poor that it, it kind of destroyed some of the credibility. Um, and I, I'm a fan of Dan Greider and the people at Gold Seal, but um, you know, I think, I think it, it, it kind of called into question exactly to what extent we need to do it. But I think the effort is admirable, and I do think that people should treat it more as a profession than a hobby. Um, and, and the ability to focus on skills like that that are more weighted towards the airline portion of the industry, I think will improve GA safety overall. Yeah, and I, I get what you're saying. It's actually funny because I, just the way the YouTube algorithm worked for me, I actually watched the second video first and then I went back and watched the first video. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I, I want to say it was, it was the first video where they had all of the different pilots and like their reactions. Was that, was that am I right in that? The first video had that, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I believe, I, I agree with you, that was the stronger video. Um, and it was kind of strange with the whole, like, uh, simulated emergency. Um, if you guys are kind of unfamiliar with what we're talking about, you can see that on Flight Chop's YouTube channel. Um, but it does kind of highlight the need. Um, I, I think the main thing, that the main takeaway from that video was how dangerous task saturation can get very quickly especially in something like an emergency even if it's just stimp simulated um i wouldn't say that was the main takeaway i think that was a secondary i think the main takeaway was was about how we approach training i think that's the message that's that's well that's the the overall message from the whole series i felt like from that specific video from the um emergency portion of that yeah yeah i i I don't know i'd I'd have to probably rewatch it but uh um you know that Test saturation and situational awareness, all that stuff is an ongoing thing um, in aviation, and it has been. I think that, again, that's a good topic for so many good topics in aviation, but that's a, that's a whole episode worth of, of talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, let's have – well, we actually have an – do you want to do – yeah, let's, we have a update to a past story. Um, and on the past in the – on the podcast, we have discussed a company reposting one of my photos off of my Instagram account without my permission. Then I asked them to take it down. They did that, um, which was very kind of them because I did not want to be associated with um, the gray area of commercial flight that this company is operating under. So um, do you want to talk about this uh, news item? Sure. So some of you may have heard of the, the company Blackbird or seen their posts on Instagram and things like that. And basically, it's Uber for the air. Um, Uber for the general aviation community. It's the same principle. It's rideshare. So, you know, you put in a destination, a departure point, a time, and then you get matched with the pilot. Um, and uh, for a while, there was a lot of questions about where the legality of this fell into and we'll kind of get into what some of what it means in a minute um but you know it, it was for a long time a lot of people were saying it counted as something that you know was illegal or it didn't um and there were a number of justifications for that but the faa came out and made it pretty clear their opinion on it um and and pretty much issued a letter to the company um uh, uh, you know, basically the, telling them that they were, they were in violation of, of certain parts of the federal aviation regulations. Um, immediately after that, pretty, pretty recently actually, they followed up with something called an advisory circular. And basically what that is, is that is the FAA publishing a, um, 
a general explanation about their stance on rules, right? Because we all know that U.S. law is largely up for certain interpretations. Um, but this is the FAA saying, hey, we're going to help you out here, um, and, and we're going to, to clear some things up. And it's not necessarily just on laws. Um, advisory circulars can be about anything. They can be about weather, maintenance. Um, you know, the Aviation Weather Handbook, for example, is an advisory circular. It's a very long advisory circular that's just published widely. Right. Um, so advisor circulars are the FAA's way of helping you as a pilot um, or an operator discern certain information. Um, so uh, after this, the FAA published uh, AC or advisor circular 61142. Uh, and this really, really does uh, help clear up a lot of questions, um, you know, people have had over the years about commercial operations. And I don't know if you want to start getting into um, do you want to talk about um, the specific – actually, I can talk about the – basically the letter that the FAA had written directly to um, this specific company, Blackbird. Do you want me to talk about that? Um, yeah, just kind of overview that to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, um, I'm, not, I'm not too familiar with the actual letter itself. Yeah, sure. So I'll just give an overview. Um, so – on December seventeenth, two thousand nineteen, um, the basically the the legal counsel of this company, Blackbird, was informed, um, based on their June tenth um, letter, which kind of was an appeal, um, to say, hey, we're actually we're not holding out. Um, our business model is legitimized under this and that um, regulation. Um, I I won't get into that because we kind of gone over that before. Um, in our previous podcast, but basically, like Josh explained, they were kind of the Uber um, of the aviation segment. But the conclusion that the FAA um, said was that I'll I'll read it verbatim. So the information that Blackbird has presented us leads us to conclude that the pilots participating in Blackbird's platform and using its app are holding out and are thus engaged in common carriage. This conclusion does not apply to individual commercial pilots who are legally operating the flights for op- for operators authorized to conduct in- operations under 14 CFR Part 135 or pilots who are legally operating under CFR Part 91, or that's uh, 91.501. So I don't know my um, uh, CFR and, like, FAR AIM parts down to, um, like down to the decimal like Josh does. Um, but basically the idea behind this letter, and that was just a small excerpt of this letter. You can read it on um, the FAA website or you can just uh, Google Blackbird letter FAA and it will probably come up. Um, so basically it, it it's, the, it's the FAA's conclusion that Blackbird is falling under the holding out category. Um, basically meaning that the general V or the, um, the general public was expecting a degree of safety competent to the airlines um, and like uh, what they would call 121, um, uh, a part 121 operation. Um, however, they're not getting that degree of safety because this could be a commercial pilot with 200 um, something hours versus when people hear, um, hear commercial or something along that line, they th- immediately think, Oh, it's an airline. Um, I expect this amount of safety. So, with that said, 
the general public was expecting that, and the FAA decided this was kind of a little bit like deception in a sense, um, that type of thing. So, uh, yeah. deception's not the greatest word to use. Um, just it, it's it's lack it's, of public kind of awareness. So they don't want to mislead. A misleading is maybe the better word. Um, so the it's pilots that were signed, that okay, yeah. That the FAA was concerned about how they were about what they were advertising. It was about the legality behind how they were doing it. And if you don't mind, I think it's important right now to start going into the technical side yeah, of the FARs and definitely. discussing that. So for people who are just a, a warning or a fair warning for people who aren't well-versed um, in uh, aviation, we have something called the code of federal Re code of federal regulations, title 14 CFR 14. Um, and this has to deal with air transport um, or air operations in the, in the United States. Um, and it's divided into uh, a few parts. Um, you may have heard of things like Part 61, which has to deal with all the regulations regarding certifying pilots. Um, part 91, which has to do with general operating procedures. Um, and then additionally, we have three very important parts. We have Part 135, which deals with uh, air charter operations or air taxi services. Part 121 which deals with the uh, commercial airlines, so Delta, JetBlue, Southwest. And then we have part 119, which deals about, where, which is a division which, which talks about uh, something called an operating certificate. Um, and here's where a, a distinction comes in. You as a commercial pilot, right, are able to operate for compensation or hire in a few circumstances, right? Uh, however, what that does not give you the ability to do is run an airline. Right, you, you cannot run a regular scheduled airline, um, you know, without something called an operating certificate. You, as a pilot, don't necessarily have to hold an operating certificate to work for an airline. You can be an employee of an airline or an air charter service or whatever that holds an operating certificate. Um, but that's important to understand the distinction. The pilot and the operator are two different people, right? Or not necessarily, but they can be, and most often they are, right? Okay. Um, under a commercial pilot, you have basically two ways, two, two categories of, of services you can provide. You have something called private carriage and common carriage. Um, the thing is, is that the FAA doesn't necessarily define what these are because these are super common terms in U.S. law, right? Um, what distinguishes these, what distinguishes private and common carriage is something called holding out, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but. For your context, private carriage is is, um, is things like flight instruction, right? If you're giving flight instruction or you're doing banner tow, um, that would be something that, that would be considered private carriage, right? You are not broadly uh, advertising the the uh, ability to, to carry people um, for for hire to the general public, right? Now, common carriage. Um, Common carriage is going to be found uh, in the in 14 CFR, um, and it's going to it's going to be defined by a few things. It's going to be the willingness to carry people or persons, uh, persons or property for hire, um, uh, withholding by holding out, which, like I said, we'll talk about in a second, um, from place to place for compensation or hire, right? Um, now, like we said, what defines that is holding out, and again, this is where for a long time. Um, and even still today, people are a little bit gray on, on exactly what that means because it's not very clearly defined. You can think of holding out as advertising, 
right? Advertising um, your services to a non-targeted group of specific people um, or the general public. Um, an example of holding out would be, for instance, if I were to post uh, uh, on a my public Instagram page, uh, j.lcap, by the way, um, uh, I am going to be flying from San Diego to Long Beach looking for two passengers to share the expenses of the flight. Um, that would be considered holding out, right? Because I am directly offering my services to a large spectrum of the general public, um, uh, probably not for pro rata, um, which is, I think we talked about in the, the other podcast. Um, and therefore I would be, be holding out, right? I'd be offering my services um, uh, to a, a non-targeted group of the general public. An example of me not holding out would be if I were to post on, uh, you know, in my DMs with people I had a pre-existing relationship with, hey, I'm going to be flying anyone who wants to come along and share expenses or pay, right? Um, if it was like a group of two or three people that I can easily, you know, declare that I've had a pre-existing relationship with, maybe Nicholas or, or someone else, um, or if I was giving flight instructions, something like that, that would be an example of me not holding out and thus would fall under private carriage. <laughs> Uh, however, anything that, that uh, happens under holding out is thus considered common carriage and requires an operation certificate or to be operating under a, a company that holds an operation certificate, right? Does that make sense? It does make sense. So in 61-142, this advisory circular, the FAA clarified their, their positions um, uh, on this, right? Um, and basically what they said was that if you're posting on the internet, or an app, a publicly available app, you are not targeting a specific group um, uh, of people you have a pre-existing relationship with, right? Which is, which is obvious. Um, and you are broadcasting your intent to carry persons or property from hire to place to place, um, uh, you know, um, broadly to the general public. Um, and because of that, um, you are no longer um, under the uh, under the claim of, of private carriage, you are under common carriage, and thus you must hold an operation certificate or be working for someone with an operation certificate as an official employee um, uh, in order to to receive comp uh, compensation for your flying, right? Yeah. Um, and and so um, with that being said, because Blackbird uh, doesn't hold this operation certificate, or at least I don't believe they do. Um, and they don't directly employ people. They're a, a platform for pilots to broadcast. And that in of itself, I think, should have been a, a, a dead giveaway. You know, you're broadcasting your intent to the general public that you're willing to carry persons or property for hire, right? So, um, you know, I think that that should have been the end of the argument, but they, there were defenses for it. Um, yeah, their main defense was centered around um, the pre-existing relationship is the registration of the, the platform itself because okay. your relationship is user or uh, passenger the, and pilot but you're not really are you is that really the a idea relationship? Was that, the idea was is that that is a, a limited targeted group of people and not the general public but you're having an app that anyone and their mom can sign up for so you know that uh, I don't consider that argument to be particularly valid, and then apparently it was the FAA. Um, they also defined um, some other uh, questions or, or things that people have, have kind of brought up. So you know, uh, 
flights with and without co common purpose, um, uh, you know, which will constitute common carriage versus private carriage. Um, and generally, it's a very, very useful AC um, as to uh, any anyone who holds a commercial pilot certificate um, or is going for a commercial check ride. They lay out some very, very good examples and very plain language. Um, also, for CFIs who are teaching at the commercial level, I think it's it's also um, a really good document to point your students for because it really does lay out in plain English um, what the FAA's opinion on a lot of these subjects are. So, for anyone interested, that would be AC sixty one one forty two. Yeah, and I found the examples particularly um, interesting, and like they were they were able to like provide real world examples of. Uh, stuff that can provide more context that even me as a private pilot, I under I was able to like start grasping some of the stuff of uh, commercial ratings and like some of the particulars of that. So right, and it also it talks about for all of your private pilots out there, it talks about what pro rata means and what would it, what would be um, constituted under you know a, a accepting a pro rata share versus not and being in violation of of your. Uh, privileges and limitations of the private pilot. So, so really, I think it's a good read for anyone, um, anyone who, who is interested in, in maybe sharing expenses of flying, or like we said, who who operates as in the in that commercial sphere, or going for a commercial check ride, whatever that may be. So, yeah, it's just um, it's it's gonna be interesting to see here in the next few months what happens to, um, specifically those who signed up for the application did not fly, and then those who signed up. Um, and did fly passengers? Um, wh how the FAA may or may not take action. Um, I won't really get into that because that's really just speculation. I don't feel qualified to talk about that. Um, I don't know about you. Yeah, I I, I really don't know enough about how the FAA goes about doing things like that. Thankfully, um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it turns out. Okay, we'll do, and we'll keep um, everyone here at the flight line um, informed about that. Um, anything else you want to say about the Blackbird update? Nope. I would say, you know, before you get in an airplane with a, a stranger, you should think about exactly who you're getting in an airplane with. Um, make sure that you're comfortable with that person's level of proficiency. I think kind of like you were saying earlier, you know, when the public hears commercial pilot, they automatically think big airlines and, and that level of training. Um, but the minimum required hours is 250 total time, um, and that's nothing. And it's just because you can pass a commercial pilot check ride does not necessarily mean you're a professional pilot. So um, I, you know, it, it, I think it, that that was kind of my main ethical issue with the company. Um, but um, you know, other than that, I think it was just blatantly pretty illegal as well. Um, so I'm glad that we finally have some clarity, and I'm, I'm glad that also the FAA decided that it was time to issue some clarity in terms of the things like what holding out means and, and what they actually um, identify as holding out. Um, and I think it's uh, well needed and, and well welcomed in the community. So, yeah, and just I'm glad that I was able to get um, my name out of association with them before all of this happened. Uh, just even though like I didn't initially have any relationship with them, you know, I'm just glad that I didn't have anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's also just pretty scummy taking someone's picture, not <laughs> tagging them. And then just kind of letting them like for, for your, your 
I think they tag company's purpose. I think they tagged me though. But regardless, don't steal my photos on Instagram. Just DM me if you want to steal them, <laughs> and maybe I'll even send you a high definition one. I yeah, don't need the watermark. I, I don't know. It's just stupid. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to the Instagram cycle. Hi. Um, we have a real quick news item right here. Um, this is, uh, this was issued February fifteenth. Um, the FAA emerg- uh sent out an emergency, uh, airworthiness directive, which is AD. Um, it, it, which grounded all of the Cirrus, um, Vision jet fleet. So the subject of this specific AD, um was the 3.5 millimeter uh, audio headphone jacks um, for the passengers in the cabin. Um, so that's basically, I actually got some clarification from a friend um, who his, one, his, his father is, uh, works for Cirrus, <laughs> and uh, Josh's laughing because know, he knows who it is. Um, but basically, the problem with this was one of the semiconductors within um, the like electrical panel for these 3.5 millimeter audio jacks was um, able to, uh, I believe, short. And then um, it could potentially cause an electrical fire. And this unfortunately did happen. Um, I don't remember what day it was. Um, But anyways, it was issued after one of these planes, unfortunately, burnt to the ground on the ramp. So these 3.5 millimeter jacks um, are basically in the back of the plane or not the back, like, the passenger um, area of the plane, and this is for people that want to be on the, not radios, but the intercom, intercom. inner phone system um, with other passengers and potentially the pilots, um, but don't have a, like, not XLR. What's the what's the cable we use for Lena, ours? Lena, uh, are you talking about Lena power or maybe the 3.5 millimeter? No, the 3.5 millimeter is, like, what used to be on the iPhone. Right. Oh, uh, just just call them GA plugs. Okay, um, uh, whatever the general aviation plugs are, like your David Clark's or your Bose A20s. Some, some of the newer too. aircraft run on Leno power. I think that it's Leno. It's either Leno or Limo, which is basically it's a different kind of plug where you get power directly from the aircraft's uh, uh, electrical system, so you don't have to worry about like battery usage and things like that. But those are kind of uncommon on most GA airplanes, so it's probably just regular GA plugs. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the three point five millimeter ones were the ones that were affected. Was not the right primary ones used for the pilots. So I guess that's important to know. Um. From what I've heard, it's a fairly simple, um, fix. Remove the twelve of them from the cabin. Um. And they're basically going to just remove these jacks. Um. From all of these planes, and then they can fly until they figure out the best way to do. Um. A fix on them. Uh, and then they'll reinstall them after a time when they feel that it's safe to do so. Yeah, check right. your maintenance logs, people. Yep, uh, yeah, especially if you uh, fly a Cirrus Vision Jet like the SF-50. Um, and actually, I just want to correct what I said before. The article was issued um, from avweb.com on February 15th, uh, 2020, but the Airworthiness Directive was actually issued on February 7th, it looks like. Um, and the directive, the directive is AD 2020-03-50, if you're interested in looking at that. All right. Um, anything else on that? 
No, I mean, you know, you're again the owner operator to maintain the aircraft in airworthy condition and you as the PIC, ultimately it falls on you if you're taking an airworthy aircraft into the air or not. So, you know, do yourself a favor and, and don't legally implicate yourself and don't put yourself in danger by not complying with, with ADs that are, um, you know, overdue or, or not complied with. So, yep. Check your oh, arrows and check your uh, AAV8s um, acronyms, you know. Yeah. Um, okay, so our final item on the news um, is this really cool um, video series that the FAA has been producing. Um, it's called, oh man, what's it called? I'm blanking out on it. It From is the called deck. From the Flight Deck, thank you. Um, so this is a program that they're producing on YouTube um where the FAA is highlighting specific like runway incursions like hotspots at airports across the country um and this is another one of those like pilot programs um that's that's being employed to target the uh the lack of situational awareness in pilots um as well as promoting pilot safety um at the airport as well as making sure like uh, an example of something in the air would be uh taxiways that look like runways from the air um that type of thing so i think that this is a really cool um video series and i'm looking forward to the faa publishing more you can find that on the faa's official youtube channel uh if you search that up josh do you have anything to say about this no i think the team at fast do a great job um and i i'm glad that they're starting to reach out to people on, on more accessible mediums and more popular mediums i think it's a good stuff for the for the aviation industry yeah so that concludes our news segment i think um yeah so that's actually gonna be towards the end of our podcast is there anything you want to say um to our audience before we start wrapping it up um we're not perfect people we make mistakes we say dumb things you know it's your responsibility to to fact check things that we say if you're you know, and, and obviously don't use it for flight instruction. Um, that being said, if you have any suggestions, we'd love to hear them. Uh, things we missed, things we got wrong, you know, we, we all benefit from, from learning from our mistakes. So feel free to, to drop that, uh, I think, on, you know, they can do that on Instagram or yeah, a place um, like that. that type of thing. Yeah, or um, my email is usually listed in the podcast descriptions as well. Um, but, yeah, the disclaimer um, is at the beginning of the episode too so that's yeah. there as usual yeah and um you know share share the podcast helps us out and uh we'll try to get more of these recorded if you guys are enjoying them i know i think uh we're both blabbermouths we like talking so oh yes we like talking hearing ourselves and we actually had i was i was pleasantly surprised um last oh, you, you know how like they did the spotify wrapped type thing mm-hmm. at the end of the year um, well, as we actually get a creator wrapped as well, um, and uh, the Flightline podcast had over a hundred some listeners, and I was expecting more ten listeners. You know, yeah. I was pleasantly surprised, and that doesn't even account for our listeners on the Apple Podcast application as well as Anchor FM. So, if you guys are listening, let us know. Hit me up on Instagram aviator.nicholas if you've listened this long. Um, all all hour and thirty five minutes. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, yeah, it's been fun. We'll try to record as soon as possible. 
Um, yeah. Thanks, guys. All right. See y'all. Sure.